0: Good morning, everyone. So good to be with all of you today, albeit I recognize it's, you know, the end of spring break. Nobody's in too deep a morning. I know some parents that actually have mixed feelings about that. Um... I wanted to just talk about, as we go, launch this series on marriage and commitment, because it really is about commitment, we're taking a look at the vows that we make, the promises we make on our wedding day to one another. And I want to acknowledge that we come from different places this morning. We're at different places in our story, and the facts of those stories are different. So, you know, for some of us, we're single, and we're looking forward to or anticipating marriage in our future. And some of us, though, are single and we expect to be that way for the rest of our lives. Or maybe you're here today and you're married and you're going through a really fun season. Things are good right now, but maybe the opposite is true. You know, marriage has seasons to it. Maybe you're going through a tough one right now and just wrestling with some stuff together. Or maybe you're a person who's been widowed and there's not a day goes by that you don't miss and long for, that one that you were married to, that one that you did love and cherish, and just talking about marriage can can be a, a trip down memory lane for you and, and, and somewhat painful in that sense of grief. And then finally, there's also people who've experienced the pain of divorce, and you're moving through that. Maybe that's something that's in your past, but when we talk about marriage, it can't help but just feel like there's a dark cloud that's landed on your head, and everybody sees it, kinda like the Blue light special, you know? And that's how it can feel, you know, even though others aren't thinking that. You are in a place where you are deeply loved no matter what your story is today regarding marriage. That's what I want to start with. You are loved. You are cherished by a God who's less judge. He's not judgmental like Most of us, right? He is perfect in all his ways and he loves us perfectly today. So, today that can be your experience. So, what do I think is going to happen? I think God has something for everyone in this series. I want to just mention, I think that some people are going to be encouraged and equipped for the future they're anticipating. You can tuck away lessons for the future if you're not married, but anticipate that. Or maybe you're that single person that's going to be that way for a while and you can be a source of help for your friends and family who are married. You know, you don't have to have been married to be able to offer support to a person who is in in their time of need. But maybe today's like a marriage tune-up for you, or this series will be, and the Holy Spirit's going to reveal something to you that you need to address at this step in your marriage, at this phase of your marriage. Maybe, though, you're going to walk out 10 feet tall because this is going to be a gratitude builder in your life. You're going to walk out, add a boy, add a girl. We've got this thing. We're on a good track together right now. And I, I hope that'd be everybody. That'd be awesome. And then finally, I think that God has a personal challenge for all of us in this about how we love. How can we help but not think of that? How we love every person in our life, not just our spouse, because Jesus has so much to teach us about that. Toward that end, I'd like to pray with you. Jesus, we invite you to speak to us. I pray, Lord, that no person would walk out without encouragement, Lord, without an arm around them from you. Lord, where they know they're loved, where they know that you spoke to them, where they know that you see their story. And Lord, in the middle of that, where you helped them take a step forward toward you, toward life, toward love. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like you to take a, just a moment and look at this video with me. Starbucks,
1: learn their drink. Like when you go to the drive-thru, learn what they like to drink at Starbucks. It'll blow her mind. It will, because women are, that's a hard drink. They're very complicated. <laughs> Men are easy at Starbucks. You, know, you ever go to the drive-thru, can I help you? Yeah, give me a mint coffee, no cream. Uh, honey, what do you want? <laughs> okay, here's what I want. Listen, listen, this is what I want. I want a tall, skinny, sugar free, decaf soy vanilla latte, extra hot whipped cream, double sleeve, no cup. Please tell me you got that, please. I'd like to change my order to a large whiskey, just a large cup of whiskey, because I'm going to drive away and off a cliff. I don't want it to hurt so bad. And a blueberry scone. (laughs) And then when I met my wife, it was just amazing. It was love at first sight. She was walking across this field, and she just looked right at me, which I thought was weird, because I thought, you know, I was hidden by the bushes. But... (laughs) Love knows no boundaries. She looked right into my binoculars. And um, (laughs) so we got married. It was awesome. Uh, She changed her name. I was eventually able to find her. Uh, Lori and I figured it out. We figured out what the source of conflict is. We know what causes the two of us to fight. It's me. (laughs) I remember the first fight I caused. It was right after we got married. And uh, I wanted to go out with the guys, just me and the guys, out like we used to. And she wanted me to stay there with her and cut the cake and throw the bouquet and all that stuff. <laughs> Oh, ladies, don't you moan at that. How dare you moan at that? It's not fair. Sometimes my wife gets mad at me for behaving wrong in her dreams. <laughs> I had a horrible dream last night. You want to hear about it? No, I'm going to tell you anyway. A grizzly bear was chasing me through the woods with his teeth. He was going to eat me. And you did nothing. You just sat there and you didn't do a thing. What was I doing? You were playing poker with a rabbit. That's what you were doing. And that's the thing. You would do something like that. You would play poker with a rabbit while I was being eaten by a bear. Luckily a giant unicorn came and saved me. <laughs> with his laser horn. That's how I saved, not by you.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, he's good. Okay, I just felt like it was important for us to laugh before we talk about loving and cherishing, and just the seriousness of the commitment of our vows, because, you know, God has a sense of humor too, and if we can't laugh at ourselves, um, we're not going to have a lot of fun in this series, right? Um, So, vows. Before I launch, though, I want you to know that this message is coming in two parts for you. The first part is, um, what did we promise each other? You know, it's talking about what does it really mean when we say we'll love and cherish as long as we both shall live. And the second half is going to look at three things that can get in the way. They can stop, they can push the button, the stop button on loving and cherishing real quickly. So that's where we're going this morning. I want to just start by talking about our vows, those promises that we make on our wedding day that M. Scott Peck has called an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. And I love that because what he's saying is in the unpredictability of life, our agreement To have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. To love and to cherish as long as we both shall live or until death do us part creates this cradle of security as we navigate life as a couple together. Now, these vows are such an important part of the wedding ceremony, at least here in Western culture and many others as well. But what does the Bible say about marriage vows? Well, we have to be real here. Technically, nothing. There are no marriage vows in the Bible. There's only that after party in John where Jesus restocks and upgrades the wine for the wedding guests. But what the Bible does say about marriage is that it is designed to be a permanent commitment or covenant or promise between a husband and wife that reflects the love and the cherishing or caring that Jesus showed for us when he went to the cross for us. And so our vows are important because they reflect God's design for marriage. They reflect the design for marriage that God set in motion from the very beginning. So I want to today, we're kind of going at it from the back, working forward. Let's consider the last line of the traditional vows, which is to love and to cherish till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live. Now, one couple sent Jared and I a modern version of this uh, to try out. They thought, um, you know, it sounded pretty cool. And it was to love and to cherish as long as we both shall love. That's not the same, is it? That's not the same promise at all. Well, we didn't use that, and we won't use that in a wedding that we, we do. It doesn't reflect God's permanent covenant relationship that we want it to reflect. So, to love and to cherish, as long as we both shall live, or until death do us part. Wow. That's a big promise. That's a huge promise. And today, the big idea is this, that to love and to cherish our spouse, we need a relationship with God, the designer of marriage, to help us prioritize our relationship with our spouse, to remember God's purpose in the middle of the ups and downs of our marriage, and to receive God's power for our marriage regularly, all the time, in the moment. So Jared and I were at a Christmas celebration dinner for a regional company's executive team. We weren't sure what to expect, but the CEO had told us that he wanted us to be there because he thought we would bring a different tone than they had at the previous year's gathering, which I guess had been fairly crazy. So we enjoyed these wonderful conversations. I knew nobody except the CEO when I went, so most of them were strangers. But we had so many wonderful conversations through dinner about their lives and their stories. And as we ate and toward the end of eating, one of the guests asked us to share our best marriage advice. And they wanted each of us to do that, Jared and then myself. What was my advice? It's the advice I'm going to start with today. It's the foundation of everything. We need God's help. We need a relationship with Jesus to have a thriving marriage. If somebody asks me the secret to our marriage, I'll always say it's a relationship with Jesus. It's each of us pursuing Jesus with all we've got, letting him change us. Because we are not good by ourselves. But I want you to think with me for a minute about the greatest commandment and the second one that's like it. Jesus said to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second one's like it, to love our neighbor as yourself. The first commandment precedes the second. We cannot love one another the way God intended without knowing and loving him. We can't truly love ourselves without knowing and receiving God's love for us. You know, it's when we receive Jesus that we receive our true identity, not the identity that we are are born into, not the identity that the culture pastes on us and that slowly encrusts our life, but that's stripped away when we say yes to Jesus and he gives us a new identity, an identity as his dearly loved child, completely accepted, forgiven by God, and filled with the Spirit of God, empowered to live a new life of love. That's the difference that Jesus can make. In Ephesians 5, where Paul gives instruction on marriage, he says these words in verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So the standard for our love... For one another is Jesus' love for us. When we say, "I'm going to love you till death do us part," the love we're talking about is this love. loving one another as Jesus love has loved us. That's a higher standard than loving our neighbor as ourself. That's as well as we love ourselves, right? this is a higher standard. No, I'm loving the other as Jesus has loved me. Now, some of us read those very words that I just read and say, yeah, that's important. That's what the husbands are supposed to do. The husband's job is to love as Jesus loves the church, sacrificially, giving up his very life. Actually, all of us are called to love this way. Here's what Jesus says in another place to everyone who follows him. John 15, 12, he said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Same standard. It's this higher standard. It's not based on how I feel. It's based on who he is. So all of these point to God's definition for love. Love is doing what's best for the other no matter what it costs. It's an act of the will, not the emotions. When I said my vows to Jarrett that day, I wasn't promising feelings to him. I was promising actions to him. I was promising to do something over the long haul. Bob Goff, author of Love Does. He's got it right, but sometimes we fail to apply that to the ones closest to us. It's all the crazy people and fun people that we meet out there and unusual people. What about the unusual person right next to me? Love does. We are promising to do something over the long haul, something that requires selflessness, something that requires sacrifice, something that's going to require service on my part. So there's that first part of the promise, to love. And then there's the second part of it, to cherish The word cherish there is a fun word. It's only used two times in the New Testament. The Greek word is thalpo. And what's interesting about it is it means to soften something with heat and then to keep it warm. And the picture is a picture of a mother bird who spreads her wings over her babies to keep them warm and protected as they're gaining strength and growing. And it's translated in both cases in most translations as care care. But it is cherish. Ephesians 5.29, here's what Paul says. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care, there's the word, and cherish their body, just as Christ does the church. That's what Jesus does for us, for we are members of his body. Then the second place where this same word is used is in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8, it says this wonderful picture. Just as a nursing mother cares, cherishes her children, so we cherished you because we loved you so much. Who is Paul referring to? He's referring to the church he's writing to, the church of Seth. Thessaloniki, and the young believers there, how he cared for them, like a nursing mother, how he cherished them as a mother cherishes their child. And why I read that to you even, or shared that with you, is this, that there is a tenderness to cherishing. There's a tenderness to this word, a caring for another that shows a thought for their feelings and their needs. And when we cherish someone, we invest in him or her and the needs they have from their perspective. So you're cutting apples for the two of you to enjoy, and you make sure that you give him the largest one. You're off to a mother-daughter weekend with your daughter, but first, that morning you grill six chicken breasts so that he has plenty of protein to enjoy. He loves things really tidy, and your closet is the last bastion of messiness. You've tried before many times. (laughs) But you don't give up. You buy some cool containers and you Marie Kondo that thing, sifting through it for what sparks joy. And you get success at last that lasts more than a few weeks. You unpack your suitcase within a few hours of your return rather than leaving it for days on the bedroom floor. When he asks if you want to watch a documentary with him, one of many, you say yes, even if inside what you really wanted was a bit of escapist fare. He finishes his appointment at Starbucks by picking up an Americano and dropping it off so that you can enjoy it. He does the dishes each morning and many evenings. He researches hummingbird feeding solutions and refills your mom's feeder before she comes home. He takes your vehicle and fills it with gas before you take off on the women's retreat. He leaves you a Starbucks card in in the middle of a wonderful card so you can get some Americanos while he's off picking up your mom in Yuma because he isn't going to be here to do those surprises for you for that week. Cherishing another human being is made up of tiny, thoughtful acts of kindness. That say, I see you. What matters to you matters to me. That's what we're promising. That's what we're promising when we say to cherish. In marriage, though, we confront ourselves. We come face to face with our own selfishness and flaws. And Jesus is our example for how to love and cherish. So we need a growing relationship with him if we're going to keep our promise. And the start of this entire marriage instruction begins in verse 21, where it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice that last phrase, out of reverence for Christ. The thing is, we set the stage to love and cherish our spouse when we have a reverence for Jesus, a reverence for him, and awe for him, a respect for him, that if he shows me something rotten in the state of Ann, that I will do something about it. That if he shows me something I need to sacrifice on behalf of the one I love, then I'll do that freely because Jesus did it for me. That's why having a relationship with Jesus is critical to your marriage, to the success of your marriage, to a thriving marriage, because it's only with his help that we even discover where we need to choose a servant path, a sacrificial love path, instead of what I feel like doing in that moment. So now we're on to part two of this message where I want to talk about three things that can interfere with loving and cherishing our husband or our wife. Three things that are essential to our ability to love and cherish. That God wants to help us with. First of all, that we prioritize our relationship as husband and wife, that we remember his purpose for our marriage, and that we receive his power for our marriage. So, first of all, let's talk about prioritizing our relationship as husband and wife. The very first mention of marriage in the Bible is Genesis 2:24. And it wasn't just our idea that first mentions are important. Jesus repeats this verse. Three or four times when he's asked about marriage, he tacks it on to something else that he's also saying. So here's what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. I like that word cleave. And they shall become one flesh. What do I like about cleave? It's the old word for sticking together, holding fast. I don't feel sometimes like hold fast is as strong as it needs to be. You know, if you've ever used epoxy, you take two different substances and you mix them together and it creates this unbreakable bond. That's what this word is more like. But I like to bring it into like glue that I'm more familiar with. Gorilla glue. Have you ever used that? Yeah. That's what this word is like. It's talking about gorilla glue, not Velcro. And we are the Velcro generation or generations, I should say. You know, easy come, easy go. I want convenience. I want to be able to unattach easily. That's not what marriage is all about. It's about getting so stuck together. That the only way that you can get apart is going to tear some of you. This is why divorce hurts so bad. So Jared and I like to compare this part of marriage, this cleaving, this blending of two lives into this one new and unique union. There's no other union like you and your spouse have. And we like to use the image of a blender. And I've put my Vitamix picture, yeah, right up here. Um, Because blender... That just doesn't sound strong enough to sound like what it really takes to blend two lives together, to really cleave. I think it's a perfect picture, though, because look at those blades. You do not stick your fingers in there. That thing tears stuff up and then mixes it all together. And I want to talk about four things that can get in the way of that process of cleaving. Four things that are all good things, but if you put them in front of your relationship with your spouse, they won't be. They will shut the blender off or at least slow it down to a very low speed. First of those is parents. Signs that you have had a problem leaving your parents. Let me just give you four signs. First sign, financial dependence on your parents. If you're married and you're still financially dependent on your parents, you haven't completely left. That's just a fact, and maybe you have a plan that you're moving on from that. Secondly, emotionally dependent on your parents. What kind of dependence am I talking about? I'm talking about when what matters to either one of you is what your parents will think more than what each other thinks. When you're making a decision, when you're trying to arrive at a direction, when you're considering something. That's emotional dependence on your parents we need to make each other's thoughts and opinions on something the most important on anything we're facing together. And nobody else's approval comes in front of that conversation. Thirdly, a psychological dependence on our parents. This is when we refuse um, refuse or are unable to leave behind old family patterns. This one might be the bigger challenge. You see, marriage is a fresh start. And when we insist on doing things the way our family did, without conversation, without consideration of what our spouse wants, then we have made a psychologically dependent decision for our future. So one of the things that uh, couples have to decide upon is chores and household tasks, kind of assignment of household duties. And now, uh, surprisingly, this is one of the top two things that couples argue about. Jared and I like to do this little assessment called Symbus, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. We do this with all of our pre-marriage couples. And oh, it's really weird on this screen. So as you look up at it, there's a list of all these tasks. And what they have to do here on the left column of X's, are the brides, um, and she's telling us what her mom and dad did, how they divided out things, and then she's telling how she expects her and her future husband to divide things. Then over here on the very right, this is the fiance, and he's telling what his parents did, and then he's telling what he expects them to do. Okay, now if you look down You see that many things are the same. There's a whole list of things there that they both agreed on. But when you get down here to the we need to decide on, you have a list of things that they have to talk about. Because their families of origin had another practice. And we all bring expectations based on our families of origin. So... I want to give you an example because I think this one fits so well. Um, Tim Keller, who is an author and a pastor back in New York City, wonderful guy, recommend his book, The Meaning of Marriage. But he shares the story of how he became aware of this in his own marriage. You see, in Kathy's family, his wife, her, her mom help and dad worked together to do the day-to-day work of the household he worked at an outside job and when he came home he helped with chores he helped with the kitchen he just pitched in the two of them worked together on it and Kathy heard her mom say this is how your father loves me by helping with all these things but Tim grew up in a much different home Tim's dad worked outside the home long hours and when he came home his mom took care of things and his dad came home and relaxed and, you know, had dinner. And, but she changed the diapers. She did all of that stuff. She, she took care of the kids, got them to bed, just all those things. And what T- Tim heard his mom say is, this is how I love your dad. Well, this all worked really well for Tim and Kathy until they had their first baby. <laughs> okay, and when they had their first baby and Tim happened to be holding the baby, and the diaper was full. You get my drift? And what did Kathy say? Finders keepers. (laughs) That was their little saying in their house. That was the idea of whoever's holding the baby at the time. That's who gets to change him. Well, Tim read what she did through the filter of his family. And what he heard her say is, I don't love you. Because that's how his mom loved his dad, was She just took care of that stuff. Now, I'm not here to say one way was wrong and one way was right. The point is, that was his family of origin, and this is a new union. This is a different marriage. This is a new family. And so talking together and figuring out how you're going to do those things is important. And that's how you stay psychologically independent from your parents, being willing to explore new patterns that become the us of your relationship. That's awesome. So we can also fail to leave our mom and dad by having unresolved conflicts with them. That thing where we say, I am never going to be like my parent in this way, that is very often the thing that will control and drive a lot of our behaviors and decisions. And you have then given them psychological power in your life in the negative side of things. I won't do what my parent did. Something other than your spouse and their consideration is at the heart of that decision. That's what's wrong with it. That's what pushes the stop button on the blender. So those, that's one way. So there's parents. Then there's career. You can put your career in front of your marriage, and that's easy to do, especially for type A-driven people. How many of you have heard of unimoons? It's the new Honeymoon. They're also called Solomons. Why? Because this is where the newlyweds take separate vacations after the ceremony. I kid you not. Big article in the New York Times two weeks ago on this. One couple that did this commented afterwards, it's very individualistic modern practice and that values efficiency over everything else. I think that it's tied to workaholism and being on the work and spend treadmill when you can't even coordinate one of the most important times in your life. Because though some of these are doing it because their interests vary, many of them were doing it because of efficiency with their work schedules. Bill and Lindy McCartney. Bill McCartney, some of you may remember him as a former Colorado football coach, turned CEO of Promise Keepers, leader of Promise Keepers, which was a big movement of men following God in the um, early 90s. Well, the problem was, while he was leading that, his own marriage was falling apart. His own marriage was in crisis because he was working 16-hour days, six and seven days a week. He himself has called it career idolatry because he put his career, whatever his assignment was, whether it was coaching or whether it was promise keepers, he put it in front of his relationship with his wife. Now, the cool thing is he eventually changed his priorities, sought extensive counseling, and was able to celebrate a marriage of 50 years before Lindy went to be with Jesus. Putting career In front of our relationship with our spouse, we'll press the stop button. The third thing is children. I told you these were all wonderful things. Kids are a gift from the Lord. But the best gift you can give your kids is a great marriage, a healthy marriage. That's what makes a great one, right? Some couples get so caught up in the care and nurture of their kids that they quit caring for one another. There's nothing left for each other. Sometimes that has to do with us feeling like nobody but us can care for our kids well enough so we don't leave our kids with anyone. When in fact, our kids need lots of adult role models. They need lots of adults that love them like we do. And you can make that a part of their life on purpose instead of by default. The fourth thing is friends. Friends, this can happen when a relationship with a friend takes the place of or gets in the way of your relationship with your spouse. I say it happens through two ways, criticism or attraction. You can have a friend who tears down your relationship with your spouse. It can be by criticizing them. It can be little, uh, little knocks on it, but overall or, or tearing you down for the things you want to do to serve them, to love them thinking that you're doing too much, whatever the the case might be, it comes in the form of criticizing that drives a wedge between you and your spouse. And that's not a true friend. And that's a friendship to leave behind or confront and give an opportunity for healing. But also there can be friends. People, especially now, there's a lot of talk of friends with the opposite sex after you get married. And um, while we have friends with the opposite sex, we don't do things with people alone. Jared and I build our friendship together. I don't build my friendship with another guy. And I love guys. I mean, I've always loved guys. Uh, in terms of a relationship, my brother is uh, really one of my closest siblings. They've always, they're just like a bunch of brothers to me. But that still doesn't change the fact that I put my relationship with my husband first. And if there's any sense of attraction, Jared and I have a saying, expose and starve it. That means that that relationship has to go away for you. So parents, career, children, friends, these are all good things, but they can turn off the blender in this marriage union, in this connecting and cleaving to each other and creating this new us if we don't prioritize what our spouse needs, what his considerations or her considerations are above all else. That brings us to the second thing that we need God's help with. We need God's help to remember God's purpose for our marriage because we can all get mixed up about what our marriage is really supposed to be about because the purpose of marriage and all the rest of life for that matter is one thing, to make us more like Jesus. It's not primarily to make us happy or fulfilled but rather to make us holy like the wonderful Jesus that we follow. And I know that can sound like just so much talk but it really truly isn't. That's what God has in store for each one of us. Romans 8 29 says this For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In marriage, we have the opportunity to come to grips with our selfishness, with our flaws, with our weaknesses. Something we're confronted with regularly. So, whoever you marry, you will fall in and out of like with across the years of your marriage. Notice I said like with, because no two people are completely compatible. Duke University ethics professor and just a wonderful theologian, Stanley was makes this point. He said, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's just this one right person for us to marry. And that if we look closely enough, we'll find that right person. And the moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate that we always marry the wrong person. Quote, we just never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or if we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change in some way. For marriage being the enormous thing that he is he says, it, we are not the same person after we've entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you are married. Now, Jared and I like to say it much simpler than that, okay? We like to say we've been married to several people and all of them are us. That's right. You see, we understand our emotions come and go, but When the essence of my marriage is a commitment to surrender my selfishness, then I continue to invest in, to cherish, and to serve the other. We can decide to love. We took our kids to an off-Broadway play. You'll have to ask them about it. Uh, I think it was eye-opening. It was called I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. It was on marriage. Now, it was funny, but I want to highlight something about that. It is not the transformation that God's talking about in Romans 8. Because what he's talking about if I'm tracking how my spouse needs to change, I have missed the whole point of Romans 8:29. It's about me changing. It's about transformation. My transformation and his transformation before God. It says to love and to cherish, not to love and to change. That's not the promise we make because that's not my job in my husband's life or in your wife's life. It's not our assignment. So two young friends, Steve and Stephanie, they called Jared and I to tell us that they were getting a divorce. I mean, we were super shocked. We'd had this couple a lot of times at our home. They were not happy with each other anymore, they announced to us. Literally, those were their words. And they wanted to be happy. And they called us because we had done their wedding and they wanted us to know. They admitted that their decision wasn't what would please the Lord. But they also said, we know God will forgive us because he's a forgiving God. So we spoke with them very forthrightly that day. I'm not saying we begged, but we entreated them. We asked them to consider another course. But it was to no avail. We hung up and we felt so really, really badly for them though we prayed as we ended the call. They did what they wanted in spite of their vows. Their call was not to seek counsel. Their call was to inform of a decision already made. They had put a wall around their hearts and avoided walking through the tough times together. Some people have proposed a renewable contract for marriage would be great where you sign a new deal every couple years like athletes but this isn't right this cuts the most fundamental part of marriage from God's perspective it is a permanent exclusive commitment to share every part of life with that one other person so if we think that marriage is for our fulfillment and our happiness like our friends did we will not love and cherish as long as we both shall live. That's why it matters. And this brings us to the final one. We need to receive God's power for our marriage. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to live out our promises to one another. When I think about the promises I made, the first thing I'm struck with is I am not enough. And that is the perfect place to be because it's when I realize I'm not enough that I call on him that I am reminded that I need him, that I need his spirit freshly filling me. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes these words before he gives his instruction on marriage, before he gives his instruction to parents, and before he gives his instruction on masters and slaves. He says this, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery or dissipation or excess, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's what I want you to know, that the Holy Spirit is the oil in the engine of our marriage. See, we put oil in our car. Well, you do if you're on top of it. The oil in our car works to keep the heat produced by the friction of the engine parts working together in check so that the engine doesn't burn up. And the Holy Spirit does this same work in our relationship with our spouse. He's the one who calls us on our stuff. He calls me out when I'm ungrateful. He calls me out when I'm being selfish. And he knows it. He knows it all the time because he can see my motives. He calls me out when I misunderstand God's purpose for marriage and begin to think that I'm supposed to be happy all the time. And the places that we've not truly prioritized our marriage, where we're letting things hit the stop button. The Spirit of God empowers us to serve. To say no to selfishness. To submit to one another, and listen to each other, even when it's difficult, to love and to cherish. I still have a long way to go. So I've been thinking about what's my personal growth point? What's the, what's the thing that gets to me, that hits a stop button for me? And I'd have to say that it's sometimes I can still get focused on how he needs to change instead of how God wants to change me. I still can get that mixed up to love and to cherish and change a little. No. And the reason I mention this is because this. I noticed how it changes the way I pray for my husband. If I'm focused on how he needs to change, your prayers strangely take that tack of praying for those changes. Not saying that you can't pray scripture over your husband. That's, an, that's another thing. But the, the, the little things that I want him to change in. No, instead, my prayers become much bigger. About something totally different. It changes how I thank God for my husband because suddenly I'm focused on what he's not getting right from my estimation instead of what he's doing, all the amazing ways that he loves and leads so well. And it changes the way I act toward him. You know this too, if you've ever had those critical countdowns for your spouse. That's how I wanna keep growing. I still have a long way to go, but I am determined. I have set my face to make a personal relationship with Jesus the most important thing in my life, knowing that he is the one who equips me. He is the one who empowers me. He is the one who loves me when I do mess up at loving and cherishing my husband. What about you? What's your next best step? Here's some to consider. If you haven't made Jesus your Lord and Savior, if you haven't been forgiven, let him give you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. I mean, that's just the best step you could ever take in your life. And I want to encourage you today, don't delay that. Say yes to Jesus. He is a gentleman. He waits for you to say, I do, to his proposal of love. That's what you can do today. Secondly, what interferes with you loving and cherishing your spouse? What's God asking you to do to change that? He's super creative, a lot more than I am. He has his own ideas. But maybe it's going to be to come to our marriage tune-up that's going to happen April 27th, Saturday morning, 9 to noon. We're going to be right here with two wonderful counselors, Sabrina and Eric Walters. And we're going to have an amazing time together for that three hours. But maybe today, what God's really reminding you of is the need to daily be being filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know what your practice is about being filled with the Holy Spirit, but let me tell you, I make that a part of a quiet time. I make that a part of driving in the car. I make that a part of just finishing prayer with somebody in the office, and then as they leave, just saying, God, freshly fill me. Of When I have a bad attitude, my self-talk's going down the toilet, what do I do? Holy Spirit, come. You're welcome here. Would you help me to turn this around? That's what I want to invite you to today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for leading us. But more than that, Lord, for giving us your example of how to love and how to cherish. Lord, sacrificially, selflessly, filled with service toward us, you stoop down. David said, to make us great. You stoop down. The God of the universe, you came to planet earth for us. Lord, we can stoop down for each other. We can be for each other's greatness. We can help each other, lift each other up. Thank you, Lord, for helping us this week to move forward in our relationships with one another, in our relationships, in our marriage, Lord. I pray that anyone that needs to get rid of something that's put press the stop button, that needs to take a new direction, Lord, that you'll help them take those steps this week, that they won't just sit on it, they'll act on it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And just with every head bowed, I just want to ask if there's anyone here that hasn't said yes to Jesus, you haven't made him Lord of your life, you haven't let him come in and give you his spirit and give you a life of love, an abundant life as he likes to call it, And if that's you today, I just want to acknowledge it. And I want to give you a chance to acknowledge it. Would you just look up? Would you raise your hand so that I can see you? It's just about agreeing together. It's not that I'm a special person. We're just anyone can receive this invitation. Just looking across the auditorium, I don't want to delay, but I want to make sure that you have that opportunity. So, Lord, we thank you for your love today, and we celebrate it in Jesus' name. Amen.